0: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt.
1: Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you for joining me for another edition of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. For those frequent repeat listeners of this show, you know by now that this is the show where we focus on exposing and shining a light on injustice in the broken criminal justice system in this country and we do this by bringing on guests different areas of expertise in the criminal justice fields and today we're going to be speaking with a guest by the name of warren Redlick. warren's a fascinating guy he's an entertaining guy he has a background where he's a lawyer and he also even ran in the state of new york he lives in florida now but when he lived in new york he ran on the libertarian party ticket ...for governor of New York and actually did very well, which we'll get into that during the interview also. But the main thing that Warren has gained notoriety for is a controversial approach to DUI checkpoints. And we're gonna talk about that in depth. I look forward to doing that. Before we get to introducing Warren here, just wanna let you guys know where you can find the show notes for today's episode. This is episode number 48. So that means you can find the show notes page with links and some videos that we're gonna be linking to from this interview with Warren Redlick. You can find that all at lionsofliberty.com FF48. So please check that out. And also one more thing, Before we get started, I want to encourage you to please, if you haven't yet, please check out IgniteLiberty.us and look into ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt for yourself or for a uh, family member, for a loved one in this holiday season. Think about picking one up. I actually marked down, all of the hats are now $19.95. I marked them down at Black Friday. going to leave them at that price all the way up through the holidays. So be sure to check out IgniteLiberty.us for that deal. And you can get free shipping through the holidays. Just enter promo code HOLIDAY and you'll have no shipping, free shipping, just with that simple code HOLIDAY. So please check out IgniteLiberty.us. Thank you. and I hope you enjoyed today's show. My guest today is Warren Redlick. Warren is a businessman, lawyer, and politician. In 2005, he briefly served as the political director of the Libertarian Party in New York. He was the LP candidate in New York for governor in the election of 2010. In that election, he collected more votes than any Libertarian governor candidate in the state's history. In 2011, Redlick moved to South Florida and expanded his law practice to include criminal DUI, and traffic defense in Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade counties. In 2013, he published his first book titled Fair DUI, Stay Safe and Sane in a World Gone Mad. And he has earned notoriety of late for his controversial approach to avoiding DUI encounters, DUI arrests. Warren, welcome to Felony Friday.
0: Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Thanks for coming on, Warren. And I do want to talk about these uh, police checkpoints. want to talk about DUIs. But before we go down that road, I did kind of want to talk about your background a little bit. Obviously, you're a lawyer. You have an interesting background where you you ran for political office as a Libertarian Party member. A lot of listeners of this show are members of the uh, Libertarian Party or at least sympathetic with the views of the Libertarian Party. So I guess first off, just What motivated you to want to run for office back when you lived in New York?
0: Uh, I guess I have a big ego. (laughs) So I always think that uh, I'm not happy with the way things are being done, and I think I can do it better, and I want to make things better. Specifically with regard to running for governor, I was primarily, you know, I didn't expect to win, but I have a lot of friends in the Libertarian Party in New York, and I had, you know, been supportive of the Libertarian Party off and on. And I saw an opportunity to really make a difference and try to get the LP ballot status. We came very close. We didn't quite make it. Uh, I got double the number of votes of any previous governor candidate, by the way, or or subsequent. Um, And I actually got a higher percentage of the vote on the Libertarian line than Gary Johnson just did. Wow. So it was a good campaign. We focused on the phrase stop wasting money. And just to give you an example of what was, uh, you know, that governments waste a lot of money. Checkpoints, by which we'll come to later, are a great example of government wasting money. And I was talking about running for attorney general in New York State. And my friend said, hey, Warren, why about run for governor? And I looked at the New York State budget. And there's so much waste in any government budget if you take a hard look. And uh, one thing that stood out to me, not in the budget itself, but the head of the New York – this is one of the things in my campaign that really rang with people. There's a library in New York City called the New York Public Library. The main branch has these lions out front if you're familiar with New York City. And uh, I found out that the head of the New York Public Library makes six, at the time, $689,000 a year. What? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, I would talk to people about that. And I would say there's something, 100, I think that last I checked, and this is a few years ago, there were 110,000 bureaucrats in New York State making over $100,000 a year. And, you know, the MTA, there's like a, a large number of them making over $200,000 a year. And it's just absurd. And, so, I had already had I had run for Congress before I was elected to my town's town board and running for Congress. I had already focused on this phrase, stop wasting money, primarily directed to wasting money overseas, defending rich countries like France was one of my lines from my congressional campaign. And it really rings with people. You know, there's always these TV shows. The fleecing of America was on NBC a lot. There's a lot. You know, you'll occasionally see some stories about how our government's wasting money in a ridiculous way. And that is a story that rings with people, and I think it can be and should be the core message of the Libertarian Party, because although I'm a anarcho narco capitalist and philosophically, and I think we shouldn't have government at all, uh, we're not going to get there overnight. And even if, even if a Libertarian won an election, they wouldn't be able to institute an narco capitalist society. But we can make government better by doing something that all Libertarians agree on, which is we should stop wasting money, and we're not alone in that one. We might be alone in saying there should be no government. And not all libertarians even agree with that. But we're not alone in saying government shouldn't waste money. And that gets us closer to our libertarian ideal.
1: I think that's a really great point. I mean, there are a lot of great libertarian candidates out there. But I think a problem that a lot of them have is they just, they go too far into the weeds yes. with a, a populace that just is not ready to hear that stuff. They're not even ready to hear about the drug war. When I mean, it's getting better today with a lot of people starting to understand that you know the government has no right to regulate what you can and can't put in your body, but that's not something that rings true as simple as just stop wasting money. You can get Democrats and Republicans to agree with that. So I, I think that's a really, really intelligent campaign to run. So it's not surprising that you found some success there. I'm curious to ask what you thought of Uh, The Gary Johnson campaign this year,
0: I thought uh, it was a disappointment. I mean, on the one hand, they got four million votes, which is a record. And, you know, it's an accomplishment. But I think it's really a result more of the revulsion for Trump and Clinton than it was for Gary Johnson running an effective campaign. I think the Johnson campaign, number one, there were some critical flaws like William Weld basically endorsing Hillary and, oh God, he's so awful. Johnson, Johnson's Aleppo moment—I don't think was that bad. But sticking his tongue out at Savannah Guthrie, I don't understand that. You know, but ultimately, there's—it was characterized by the same flaw that a lot of libertarian campaigns are characterized by. And you kind of hit it a little bit when you talked about it being in the weeds. The typical libertarian candidate carries around a flyer that's eight and a half by fourteen, and it's printed in an eight-point font with half-inch margins and stuff scribbled in the margins because they can't fit all their ideas in one piece of paper hmm. And the typical voter gets handed this flyer and crumples it up and throws it out before they read a word. And, you know, you look at Donald Trump as an example. I don't agree with Donald Trump, but I'll tell you what. He delivered really short, punchy messages. Build that wall. Lock her up. You know, if you can't get your message down to seven words that will fit on a billboard and if you really can't get, you know, really, you should be getting your message down to three, four or five words. If you can get a punchy phrase, that's something that people will remember. And we don't have the money to have you know, 25-word messages that people are going to remember. We don't have the money to have five different three-word messages. We have enough money and enough time and enough resources to get one short message out to people. It doesn't have to be Stop Wasting Money. I'm a big fan of that one because it's the one I created, and I think it works. But if you're going to run a campaign, you've got to have a short message. You've got to deliver it with frequency, and you've got to find something that rings with voters. And it, it changes over time, right? I was campaigning and I saw a campaign in the past. I saw that message really rang. You could be campaigning and you find some other short phrase that rings with the voters, but you got to find something that connects with the voters and you got to repeat it over and over again. And it's got to be a core theme and you got to be able to back it up. And if I would ask you right now, tell me what Gary Johnson's campaign theme was. If you were to to reduce Gary Johnson's message to five words or seven words or three words, what would it be?
1: What's it? Uh, socially tolerant, fiscally conservative or fiscally restrained, whatever it was.
0: Socially tolerant. How many syllables in those words? Come yeah. on. What does that even mean
1: anymore today to be socially tolerant? To be so I think they started out saying socially liberal. I'm not even sure what that means because you know liberals have distorted their message of their message of being socially liberal so much to go into, you know, having bathrooms for you know every gender or
0: no and the answer the point is that you know, you thought about it for a second and you kind of hit on what i think it is socially liberal fiscally conservative socially tolerant fiscally conservative whatever i think that's a message that libertarians like to say but has anybody ever bothered to ask whether it connects with voters the answer is no it doesn't mm-hmm. and you got to find that short i think stop wasting money sits i think i hit the home run we don't need to look for another one but if you're going to run for office as a libertarian and you don't want to use stop wasting money for some reason you come up with something but if you're going to campaign by running around with you know Large flyers, and you're going to ramble on incoherently, and you're not going to have a core message that you're going to think about it. The voters walking into the booth, and they see your name. What are they thinking? Oh, he's the stop wasting money guy. That works, okay. If it's the what the hell was that guy saying? He said something I don't know. You know, you got to have something there. You're branding yourself, and right. libertarians are too smart to think that the rules apply to them, right? And it, honestly, that's the same thing that's going on right now with uh, with the left and their disruption over Trump. They're too smart to realize that they might have actually been wrong, right? It can't be that they were wrong. It has to be that everyone who voted for Trump is a Nazi.
1: Exactly.
0: You know, know, comparing those two possibilities, I live in a country with 60 million Nazis, or I was wrong. You know, obviously I can't be wrong, so I must live in a country with 60 million Nazis, and yet somehow I'm not leaving or buying guns.
1: Exactly, their egos are too big to admit that they were wrong and they had bad information. They'd rather just—it's
0: not just them. Libertarians suffer from that. Republicans, oh suffer from yeah, that for times. sure. The Republican establishment had the same problem with Trump. They called it. Reitbart called it Trump derangement syndrome, and I think it's become an epidemic. And I think the zombie apocalypse is about to begin.
1: You're absolutely right. Well, we're certainly in for a, a wild ride, I'm sure, with these next four years with President Trump, but. I'm not sure if it's good or bad for Liberty, but it's going to be entertaining as hell to watch. Yes, I but I, I do want to pivot away and uh, I start to talk about DUIs. Before we get into DUIs, I just wanted to just kind of get your your background of being a lawyer and kind of ask you, where did that passion come from to study the law? Because that's a big you know dedication itself to go to law school for three years and pass the bar. And then that passion to become a lawyer and to go into defense law.
0: I did not go to law school because of passion. I went to law school because my father was a law professor And the path I had, I was a graduate student in another school. I was a Stanford University PhD student. I wasn't happy with the program. And going to law school at the law school where my father taught for free was an easy way out of what I was doing. And it was a pleasant experience. And I got to spend three years with my father. It turned out to be a really good call because, A, it was right. My father died shortly after law school. I got to spend three quality years with him. And I met my wife there. And, you know, I got to spend time with my mother. got to spend time with friends because I grew up there. So it was a good decision for a lot of reasons. But I didn't go there out of passion. Um, I graduated from law school, struggled for a while until I found, you know, I found one job, didn't really like it, found another job, didn't really, uh, first job I hated, second job I kind of liked for a while. Eventually, I got to the point where I started my own law firm. Wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had experience in personal injury law. I did have an interest in criminal defense, wasn't sure how much. And I started getting cases. And I will tell you that I've got more experience as a personal injury attorney than anything, and I have not a whole lot of passion for it. I don't believe in the system. I represent my clients. I fight for my clients. I am passionate about fighting for my clients. Whatever I'm doing, I think it's a stupid system, and we could do a lot better. And you know, we could basically eliminate most of the cases and save all of us a lot of money on our insurance premiums uh, if we did some serious, some real tort reform. Not the bullshit. Excuse me. Oh, Sorry. Not the, I don't know, can I swear on this?
1: That's okay. That's okay. You can swear on this podcast. Not the
0: bullshit tort reform that, you know, they talk about medical malpractice, some other things, but some really serious tort reform, which we probably don't want to get into here. It's
1: hard to be successful in personal injury law, right? Because you have to have money to, to put up to bring in experts and things you know like what that. You're doing, it's
0: not hard to be successful. The hard part is getting clients. No, it's not hard. If you get good cases, you make money. It's, I've made a lot of money in personal injury cases, but um, that's not passion. That's income. Mm -hmm. Criminal defense, I am very passionate about. I'm passionate about defending guilty people. I am passionate about defending innocent people. I am passionate about helping people who have mental health problems get caught up in the criminal justice system, helping them to get the mental health help they need and then getting their case resolved with some kind of deal. I am passionate that people who are arrested with drugs should not be prosecuted and they should not be convicted. There is so much wrong with this system in so many ways. We have an assembly line system. If you want to ask me about my passion for criminal defense, it's going to be a long conversation. So you may want to, I'll stop now and see if you have a specific question about that, because I can go on for a while.
1: That's fine. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I do want to bring out your areas of passion. And, uh, you know, that's what this podcast is all about. I want my guests to give you the floor.
0: Let's talk about DUI and my passion about DUI defense.
1: Let's talk about that. I mean, before we get to the the flyer and the book, where did this passion come from? Where did it originate from? <laughs>
0: I started getting drunk driving cases, and I started seeing a lot of people who were essentially, number one, they're people who haven't harmed anyone, right? No one's been hurt. Is the purpose of the criminal law to punish people? And the same thing with the drug war, right? They're people who haven't hurt anyone. Our system is very, very harsh on people accused of drunk driving. Not people guilty of drunk driving, people accused of drunk driving, our system is very harsh on. Um, we're not particularly more harsh on people who are found guilty of drunk driving as we are on people who are innocent of drunk driving.
1: What do you mean by that, by People accused of drunk driving. Assistance. In many
0: states, The minute, uh, shortly after you're arrested for drunk driving, you lose your driver's license. Innocent until proven guilty is a fiction in this country. Right. You lose your driver's license. You have to fight to get it back. The due process is not genuine due process. But, you know, ultimately, I represented a lot of people who had harm to no one. Who, First of all, I did represent some guilty people. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, I helped them, too. But I represented a lot of people who I genuinely believe are innocent and the deck is stacked against them. Police lie a lot. It's stunning when you see how when you're in court and you see the lies and you catch them lying, and judges in my experience, most judges, at least in my experience, and my experience is limited to certain areas and there are exceptions, but judges in general do not care that cops lie. And unfortunately, a lot of juries do not care that cops lie. It depends on what jury you get. Now, sometimes you get a jury that actually does care, but a lot of jurors just don't care that cops lie. And they lie a lot, and they especially lie a lot in drunk driving cases.
1: Well, the juries just believe everything out of the cop's
0: mouth, right? You can get them to question it, and you can get them to the point where they're not sure the cop is lying. But to get them to throw out the case because the cop is lying, to get them to discredit all the evidence is very, very challenging. And um, you know, it will be a good example of this, is people think these breath test devices are magic. you know, And it's a real hurdle to get people to believe, to get people to understand that these breath test devices are junk. They are absolute junk. They are not reliable. There are cases where they're correct. I'm not saying they're never correct, but they are often wrong. They are not reliable. They are just total garbage. And I can't tell you how many innocent clients I've seen where I, I'm convinced of their innocence and I see them blow a ridiculously high number. You know, people just do not understand. They believe that somehow a guy with a, you know, let me give you a simplest example. You've probably seen these videos where the cop's got somebody on the side of the road and he looks in their eyes and he has them stand on one leg and he has him walk a line. Okay, Mm -hmm. that is ophthalmological and neurological testing performed by a guy with a high school diploma and a few hours of training on the side of the road at night with cars whizzing by and lights flashing around. Now, when you go to the eye doctor, right, to have your eyes checked, right, does he say, you know what, we're not going to do this in my office in this quiet setting. I'm going to take you outside, have you stand by the side of the road and I'm not going to do the eye exam. I'm going to have Joe here. He had three hours of training last week and I'm going to have him look at your eyes, you know, and nobody thinks that this is a problem. You know, Nobody thinks and, – and they don't even follow their training, by the way. Have three hours of training. They don't even follow it. I've cross-examined probably 100 police officers on how they do these tests, and one of them did them – at least testified that he did not correctly.
1: What is the training? If you can just kind of – can you take us through step-by-step? A cop pulls someone over. What, what do they do to get them out of the car and then start performing that training? There
0: is a manual called the Standardized Field Sobriety Test Manual, or the DWI SFST Manual, which is promulgated by the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA. And there is a process that most police agencies follow, not NYPD, by the way. I have a case going of NYPD. They don't seem to follow any rules that anybody else does. But they have a reason for stopping the car. At least in theory, they have a reason for stopping the car. Often, their stop of the car is wrong. They stop the car, they approach the window. They have some interaction with the driver. And over the course of that interaction, they make a decision whether or not to get ask the driver to step out of the car or order the driver to step out of the car. And um, that may be based on: Did he have slurred speech? Did I see bloodshot eyes? Did he uh, fumble with the license when he was, t- you know, handling it? Um, a variety of things. Or did I smell uh, detect the odor of alcoholic beverage? Is a that's the language they use. I detected the strong odor of alcoholic beverage emanating from the vehicle or emanating from the driver's mouth, whatever. So they look at those things, and if those thing if they see enough there to say I need you to step out of the car, then they conduct these other tests called field sobriety tests, where they have you stand on one leg, they have you walk a line, they wave a pen or something in front of your eyes and they watch how your eyes move. They may have you blow into what's called a PBT or portable breath screen, also known as an ALCA sensor, which is not admissible in court for the number it produces. Generally, it's every state's different. It's not considered reliable because it doesn't have some of the exposed safeguards that the one in the station has. And people often get confused, by the way. They think that the one on the side of the road that's a handheld is a breathalyzer. It's not. There is no breathalyzer anymore. I don't know anybody who uses a breathalyzer. That brand name is, as far as I know, no longer in use. There's an Intoxalizer, Drager, Datamaster, whatever. There's a whole bunch of them. But the device that's held in the hand is not the thing that, if you refuse, you lose your license. The one in the station is the one you, if ref- you refuse, your license. A very complex system. Anyway, you blow in that thing,
1: but they'll still tell you to blow on the side of the road. What's that? Right. But that's just
0: not. It's not. Doesn't mean anything. Well, it's part of their decision to decide whether they're going to arrest you and take you to the station, to have you blow in the big machine right? Did you fail these tests? Did you register a number on this handheld device? Put all this together, do I have enough to say I have probable cause to arrest you? That's the probable cause decision. All that goes into the probable cause for arrest, and that's one of the things that we challenge when we fight a case in some cases. Then they take you to the station, they have you blow on a machine, they may try to draw your blood if they think you're impaired by drugs, and that's pretty much what happens in a drunk driving arrest in a very short, short description.
1: So, say I'm pulled over, and I'm suspected of drunk driving. I'm I'm not drunk. By the way, all
0: that stuff I just said is largely in my book, Fair DUI. And it, if I just said it really fast because you know I know the stuff really well, and a lot of it is broken down pretty well. And the book is ninety nine cents on or no, it's two ninety nine on Kindle. I think.
1: Oh, well, that's that's great. Now I will link to that in the show notes as well, so everyone can go uh, go pick up your book because you know even if you don't drink and drive, which nobody should drink and drive, you want to be armed. you, you want to know. You want this knowledge. So if you do get pulled over. You know your rights, and, and you know how to act, which is which is why I'm going to ask you right now. So, say I'm, you know, driving along with my family, and I I get pulled over, or I end up going through a uh, field sobriety check, and I don't
0: have your a sobriety checkpoint, which is being pulled over.
1: Sobriety checkpoint. And I don't have your pamphlet to stick up in the window, which we'll talk about in a minute. What should I do? Cop comes up to the door. What's the best way to react? So
0: there's two issues here. Okay, now, listen, I know we're not supposed to talk about white privilege, but I'm going to talk about white privilege, white male privilege, whatever. If you are a white male and you have been pulled over in the past and you were going 52 and a 40 and you get a break, you are the kind of person like me who gets pulled over and gets breaks from police officers. I am one of those people. I do get breaks from police officers. Roll down the window, have a play conversation. Hey, I'm going to write you for a broken headlight instead of for speeding. Hey, I'm going to give you a warning this time. I get those breaks. If you are sober, it's a Wednesday afternoon. You know, you have no reason to be concerned that you think that you might be arrested for drunk driving. Then it's probably a better bet to be cooperative and friendly with the police officer. If it is a Friday night and you had two beers and you are completely sober, but you had two beers... And you are driving, there is a, even if you're a white male, there is a strong chance that you are going to be arrested for drunk driving if you cooperate with a police officer. So, the interesting question that the flyer brings up, and it's tougher if you don't have the flyer, the flyer that you hold up in the window, is Are you required to roll down your window when you are stopped by police? And if you think about it in the context of your house, a police officer comes up to your front door and knocks on the door, and you don't open the door, and you say, Who is it? And he says, Police. You can say, I'm not opening the door or not saying anything. Or you say, do you have a warrant? If you don't have a warrant, you don't have to open the door. My view is that that moment of deciding whether to open the window is similar to that moment at the door. And if they don't have a warrant, if they don't have probable cause at that moment, which they generally don't, because as I just went through with how dwi arrests are made, dwi DUIRS are made, they develop probable cause mostly after you've gotten out of the car. You don't have to roll down that window. Now, that's a controversial opinion. And a lot of lawyers, a lot of defense lawyers disagree with me about that. But I believe you are not required to roll down your window. And you have a decision to make. And the decision is, do I want to roll down the window and have a conversation with a police officer? And you got to keep in mind, and I want to be very clear about this because a lot of people do not understand this. Innocent people get arrested for drunk driving. When they, depending on what state you're in, things work differently. But in Florida, at least, uh, where I am, when you get arrested for drunk driving, when that police officer makes the decision to arrest you, Your mugshot will be on the internet. You will be charged with drunk driving. You will be held for a minimum of eight hours in custody. These things will happen if they decide to arrest you for drunk driving. And if you have a conversation with the police officer and you say, yeah, I had a couple beers happen an hour ago, you're done. It's over. Mm -hmm. You're going to be arrested. Your mugshot's going to be on the internet. Your neighbors are going to think you're a drunk. People who know you're going to think you're a drunk, it's over. You know, you may be able to win the case later. There's all kinds of things that may work in your favor. You can blow a 0.000 and your mugshot's going on the internet and you're going to be charged.
1: Just because you said you had some beers, that's almost enough probable
0: cause right there. Cause the police officer decided to arrest you. Doesn't matter what you said, doesn't matter what you did. I have seen countless videos of people arrested for drunk driving who look completely sober. And police officers who are completely wrong in how they conduct their DWI investigation, not following the manual I described earlier, completely wrong. And you know, you're in court, and you can pay me five to ten thousand dollars to defend your case, or you can take this deal. What are you going to do? And there's an awful lot of people that can't afford to pay me five to ten grand, right? So you know, that's it's a, and you know, you can pay me five or ten grand and still lose. You know, I, just because you hire me doesn't mean we're going to win. You know, like I said, the judges, the juries, they're – Well, the cop said he was drunk. So that's a pretty big hill to climb. You think we were innocent until proven guilty. And, uh, you know, factors may not be that. There's things I look for. You know, do you have witnesses who are going to testify that you were sober? A lot of people are alone in their car. Who's going to testify for him? Cop says he was drunk. You say you weren't. Now three people walk in a courtroom and say he was sober. I was with him 15 minutes before he got pulled over. I was in the car with him. Of course he was sober. I wouldn't have let him drive if he wasn't. You know, credible people walk into crime. Keep in mind, I destroy the cops' credibility on his testimony. They don't destroy my witnesses' credibility. Then we got a shot. But it's an uphill battle.
1: Absolutely. So you've obviously kind of become known for this flyer that that you put in the window. Where did that idea come from? Sure.
0: So what happened was, I wrote the book first. I don't know why the book was in me, but the book was in me, and I just poured out. I just one day decided to write this book. And the book is not about the flyer, by the way. The flyer came after the book. I had been handling some cases or you know, whatever reason, for some reason it was on my mind, it was eating at my craw. And this book just, it wasn't work to write the book. It just poured out of me. And you know, I had a professional editor look it over. I have a friend who's a state police officer look it over, a lot of help, you know, making sure it was good and accurate and had the right information in it and all that. So the book poured out of me and I published it and it was doing okay. And people were reading it and people were asking me questions. And one of the questions in the book, I recommend not talking to police. Now that sounds simple. Again, that's a very common thing. Defense lawyers will say, "Don't talk to the police." But in the context of you just got pulled over, the police officer walks up to the car. How do you not talk to police? And I stewed on that for a while, and the flyer came to me. I don't know. It was the middle, probably one of those things where in the middle of the night I woke up and said, "I got it." And it's part. Of the flyer was driven partly by some U.S. Supreme Court cases. There's a guy who was arrested. He was in custody, suspected of murdering somebody, I think. And at a certain point. They ask him, well, you know, why did you do it? You know, he didn't admit doing it. He says, well, you did it, didn't you? And he didn't answer. And the defense argued he was invoking his right to remain silent. And the Supreme Court said, no, you have to, I believe the phrase is, you have to expressly invoke or affirmatively assert your right to remain silent. So, which is interesting, because if you're going to remain silent, you have to invoke your right to remain silent. Do you have to say I'm remaining silent, which is a catch-22, in a drug-driving context where they're going to say your speech is slurred? right? That's one of the critical things they look for is, did you have slurred speech? And if you're speaking and they can hear you, you got your window rolled down, they claim they detected the odor of alcoholic beverage. So I want you to keep your window up, and I don't want you to talk. So how do you do that? Well, you hold up the flyer, and the flyer, for those who don't know it yet, says, I remain silent. No searches. I want my lawyer. Those are three very clear invocations of your fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment rights. Your right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. No searches. No searches. Your right to remain silent under the Fifth Amendment, and your right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. Notice it says, I want my lawyer, not I want a lawyer. It's not I'm expecting you to provide me the public defender at this point. It's I already have a lawyer, and I want to talk to my lawyer before I talk to you. The value of the lawyer one is probably the weakest of the three. You know Whether you have the right to an attorney at that stage is maybe an open question. I don't think it's a question, but some would argue that you don't have a right to an attorney at that stage.
1: I heard you tell a story, interesting story on another podcast about uh, someone saying, I want to talk to my lawyer. They let him call his lawyer and the guy put the cop on the phone with his lawyer.
0: Yeah, that's the the strategy that an attorney would have. Let me talk to the cop and, you know, can I be of assistance here? And uh, you got to understand that there are good cops and there are bad cops. And there are, you know, when you do what I do, people think I hate all cops. There are a lot of good cops out there. There are a lot of cops who don't want to ruin people's lives. There's a lot of cops who want to take care of things. And if you are a lawyer who is good to police, and which you should be, and you treat them well, and you have a reputation for being a good lawyer who treats police well, then when they get arrested, and by the way, police get arrested, and they want lawyers that they can trust. So if you are a lawyer who is respected by the police, and you talk to the police on the phone and say, hey, listen, if I come down there, can we resolve this? There's no law saying that police officer has to charge that guy. least Mm -hmm. have discretion. And if you come down there and you say, listen, let's work this out. I'll come down. I'll take them home. We'll get somebody else to come pick up the car. Some cops, not not all and probably a lot, a lot, but some cops will say, you know what, that's reasonable. There's another approach to it, which is that's not at at the side of the road. This is at the police. I think I'm not sure you may be talking about this one. You're at the police station and the cop wants you to blow in the machine. And you say, I want to talk to my lawyer and get your lawyer on the phone. The lawyer says, put the cop on the phone. And the lawyer says to the cop, He's not blowing. Don't ask him. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) He's not blowing. Don't ask him. Now, what does the cop do at this point? Well, he just told me not to ask him. So now there's this question, by the way, about whether you're going to lose your license later. Okay, if you refuse to blow in the breath machine, you lose your license. Did the driver refuse? No. Driver didn't refuse. You never asked him. (laughs) You never gave know, You asked him, and he said, let me talk to my lawyer first. He never refused. His lawyer said he's not blowing, but you didn't ask him again. And it's, you know, that's, you know, lawyer tricks. I got to admit, that's a lawyer trick. I never, I haven't done this one yet, but it <laughs> was one of those brilliant tricks that I heard from a, an old salt lawyer back in the day. To me, that's just funny because it doesn't actually happen in, in the real world.
1: Right? right. That requires the cop to then not ask and listen to the lawyer, which who knows if that would happen a or not. A lot of
0: cops would think they can't ask. Really? A lot of cops would think I can't ask him now. They would mark okay. it as a refusal because the lawyer refused. Okay. Not all. Some cops would, would know better, but not all.
1: So there's been a lot of success stories
0: with this flyer, right, in Florida and in New York? There's been a lot of incidents where a couple in New York that I know of, a lot more in Florida, where it was more active. It's kind of stalled, you know, the, the movement. We had our, our moment in the sun, and then we moved on to other things. People have moved on to other things. But I carry it in both of our family cars. I keep the flyer in the car. There's a lot of people who have it. We would go to checkpoints, and we would make videos of challenging checkpoints. And it was fun. And I would say ballpark nine times out of 10, it worked. And it should work, by the way. It's not like this is a trick. This is, you know, what's their reason for insisting that you roll down your window, right? And there's a whole, I could go way in depth about checkpoints are supposed to be run. And the way the checkpoint process works and how the checkpoint process is not designed to deal with this flyer. So there's not really a clear answer for that cop who's at the window, who's trying to, you know, talk to you. It's not really clear for him, what am I supposed to do now? And here's the thing.
1: Can I just ask you a question on that? So when you say the way they're supposed to be run, based on what? Based on the law? Based on?
0: Yes. Based on the law, they are, generally speaking, they are required to have written guidelines for how they're supposed to conduct the checkpoint. And the guidelines that they typically have do not say, if somebody refuses to hold down, roll down their window and holds up a sign that asserts their constitutional rights, do this. That's not, right. you know, they don't have that, right? They don't have that in their guidelines. So... They're supposed to follow their guidelines. If it's not in their guidelines, what are they supposed to do? But the practical reality is if you are a police officer and somebody holds up this flyer, the odds are you are being filmed right now. You're being recorded right now, and you're going to be on YouTube. And if you handle this situation wrong, you are going to become famous on YouTube, and you don't want to be famous on YouTube. Very few police officers want to be famous on YouTube. And right. the best way to not be famous on YouTube is to wave them because right? if you make a scene, there's a chance that something's going to go wrong and you're going to become famous on YouTube for the wrong reasons. Right, And so there's a video that we did December 31st, January 1st. January th- it was the end of uh, 2014, beginning of 2015. My friend Jeff Gray did a video near Gainesville, Florida, Levy County, Florida. The video has been viewed over 3.5 million times. No one knows the cop's name. I don't know the cop's name. Jeff doesn't know the cop's name. No one cares what's the cop's name because he didn't act like a jerk. He waved us on, and nobody cares what his name is. And that's his goal, right? His face is maybe recognized by a few people, but nobody really cares about him. He's not the story. And if you are a police officer and you want to move on with your life, you do not want to be the star of a YouTube video. And that's really the underlying motivation for us, why I think the checkpoint approach works.
1: If I can ask you, what happened? There was a highly publicized... I guess not highly publicized, but it's out there in the internet. I read about it on copblock.org talking about you were actually arrested at
0: a DUI checkpoint doing this. I went beyond what I recommend other people do. I deliberately went beyond my recommendation to other people because a specific circumstance arose. When we started getting some notoriety, we found out through public records requests that prosecutors and police attorneys were sending messages around to each other. How are we going to deal with this flyer? And the city of Coral Gables, uh, I think I found this, they had adopted a policy. Basically, they're going to arrest somebody who refuses to cooperate with a checkpoint. Now, keep in mind, I think we are cooperating with a checkpoint. We stop. Mm -hmm. We show the flyer. If they ask for the license, we show the license. We just don't roll down the window and we don't talk. Okay, Mm -hmm. and you know, I know know you've probably heard this idea that we have a right to remain silent in the United States, but uh, that is not commonly accepted among Florida police attorneys and prosecutors and sheriffs. When this story broke, There were multiple Florida sheriffs and other people who said that you don't have the right to remain silent at a checkpoint, that you have to talk to the police. If you don't talk to us, we're not going to let you out until they talk to us. So you thought you had the right to remain silent. You thought you lived in the United States of America, but you were wrong. There are people who believe you don't have the right to remain silent. There are people who don't believe you have the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. The Supreme Court in 1990 said you have to stop. They can conduct checkpoints. They never even said you had to stop. They only said they could conduct the checkpoint. They didn't say what happens if somebody refuses to stop at the checkpoint. There's a recent Oklahoma Supreme Court case where one of the judges said, you know, I'm not even sure if the law is clear that we can arrest them if they don't stop, right? They never said you have to roll down your window. What they ruled on was stopping you in a checkpoint is a seizure. And they ruled that they can do that. So I think the Supreme Court would say, yes, you have to stop. I think that's pretty clear. (laughs) But all they said was that the seizure, the stop of the car conducted by a checkpoint was legitimate. They never said you have to roll down your window. They never said you have to talk. They never said you have to blow on a device. They never said you have to do any of that stuff. All they said was that the police can stop you. And that's where I'm going with this. And unfortunately, you know, it would be nice if uh, other defense lawyers joined in on this and they didn't. And there was a lot of public interest for a short time. But so anyway, we did a bunch of checkpoints. They worked well. This one particular checkpoint, the city of Coral Gables adopted a policy saying that you had to roll down your window, you had to talk to them, if you didn't, you'd be arrested for, Now I can't remember the term, resisting an officer without violence is the, uh, the offense. It's kind of like resisting arrest, but of course, you're not arrested.
1: That phrase doesn't even make sense, resisting without violence.
0: Well, you know, you're standing in the cop's way, but you don't punch him, or you don't do what the cop says, right? The cop says mm-hmm. move here, and you don't do it, you're resisting. It's an interesting question, what qualifies as resisting? So anyway, we get to the checkpoint, and we've got a guy in the passenger seat who's recording. I'm recording. i got a guy outside the car with a camera recording. We had, I don't know, something like six cameras going. And uh, the first guy who comes to the window, he's baffled. He doesn't know what to do. He calls over the guy running the checkpoint. And the guy running the checkpoint comes over, and here's my rule, okay? My rule is you don't do what they say unless it's an order, okay? If they say, sir, would you please roll down your window? Is that an order? No. But I say it's not an order, so I'm not refusing an order. If you said, sir, would you please roll down your window? Sir, would you mind rolling down your window? Yes, I would. I'm not rolling down my window. You know, if they say I'm ordering you to roll down your window, my advice to people is once you're ordered to do it, you do it. So what happened in our check window, he never gave me an order to roll down my window. Never, never said I'm ordering. It was always, sir, would you? Now, it was, sir, would you please roll down your window? If you don't roll down your window, I'm going to have to arrest you. Okay. So is that an order? I don't know.
1: That could be. I might consider that an order. So
0: (laughs) my attitude was it's not, and it says on the card, I will obey clearly stated orders. It's right on the flyer. I will comply with clearly stated order, clearly stated lawful order. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's not a clearly stated order. It's not lawful order, but you know, I was going to comply. If they had said, I'm ordering you to roll down the window, I would have done it, but they never said it. So we waited and eventually the guy opened, we the car door was unlocked unintentionally, by the way, the car door was unlocked. So he unlocks the car, I get out of the car, I comply. You know, the minute he pulls me out of the car or you know unlocks the door of the car, as far as I'm concerned, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. They held me for about three hours. They uh, took everything in my pockets. they searched the entire car, which again, what does that have to do with the checkpoint? Why are you searching the car? Right. Um, there's a whole bunch of issues going on there. Ultimately, they released me after three hours. They charged me with a traffic violation for failure to display my license, which I had held up to the window so they could see it. But we're in court, and there's this hysterical, I didn't realize it as it was happening in court. I realized it later and I made a video about it. The police officer claiming that you know he needs to hold the license in his hand because he needs to check the hologram to make sure it's a valid license. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but the holograms and driver's licenses respond to light. Yeah. And the glass in a car window allows light to pass through. It's this remarkable property of sheet glass that's been true for about a thousand years that if you have sheet glass, light goes through it. So I made a video showing that if you look at the license from outside the window, you can see the hologram. So it was a big, fat lie that you do not need to hold the license in your hand to see the hologram. All you have to do is move your head back and forth and you can see the hologram. Not to mention, it wasn't a license checkpoint. It was a sobriety checkpoint. You don't need to see the license in a sobriety checkpoint. You need to check whether he's sober or not. So there's all these little picky issues that I've got, you know, nitpicky about, you know, what they're doing. But ultimately, I was challenging their policy That if you refuse to roll down your window and you refuse to speak with them, uh, you refuse to physically hand over your license, was actually the thing. If you refuse to physically hand over your license, that you are violating Florida law and you're going to be arrested for resisting without violence. Um, And that case went to court. We had a trial. The judge was less than receptive to the idea that you don't have to roll down your window or cooperate with police in a checkpoint. Former public defender. I'm very disappointed in defense attorneys that they don't get this. And he ruled against me. And that case is now on appeal in circuit court, Miami-Dade County. And we'll see what happens. And uh, I sued in federal court. And there's a rule that protects police from lawsuits, what's called qualified immunity. And it's very tough to get over that hurdle. And I saw the writing on the wall in my federal lawsuit and dropped it rather than pursue it and risk getting sanctioned for thousands of dollars. Because I didn't think the federal lawsuit was as important as, uh, you know, once I had the, the state case going and I thought that was going well, I decided, you know what, I don't need the federal lawsuit at this point. I wanted to win. You know, I thought it was a good case. But it's just like, you know what, this is too messy.
1: Yeah, it's turned into quite a mess. But I think it's incredible work that you're doing. It really is a shame that this didn't become a huge, huge nationwide thing. I know there's some reasons why it, it only works particularly well in, in Florida. No, no,
0: it, this is designed nationwide. Is it? Okay. I mean, do I, I have flyers for 30 states? But you know, I had hoped to get a network of attorneys who would call themselves fair DUI lawyers who would advise people. Yeah, you could advise them not to do it, but if you're going to do it, do it this way. And he mm-hmm. prepared to, and you put your name on the back of the flyer instead of mine for your state. And you can help me shape how it looks on in your state. Defense lawyers just did not pick up on it. They were, I could not, I tried very hard to get defense lawyers on board with this. And I got a few, but I didn't get enough to make it something. And I, you know, I pictured a DUI hotline and I had all these marketing ideas to go with it. I just could not get lawyers on board. And I'm very disappointed because to me, I, I don't think this is a tough one. I think this is pretty straightforward. This is an effective way to challenge this key moment when the police are trying to build their probable cause for a DWI arrest or DUI arrest. you know, If they don't detect the order of alcoholic beverage, if they don't see bloodshot eyes, if they don't hear impaired speech, do they have enough to get you out of the car under their training? And the answer is generally no. This is a great opportunity to protect people from wrongful drunk driving arrests. And uh, I'm disappointed that defense lawyers couldn't get on board with it. And that's the thing. It's about wrongful drunk driving arrests. Drunks could not pull this off what you have to do. You have to be patient. You have to remain silent. Drunks are not known for remaining silent and being patient.
1: And they're not going to be able to, you know, find the flyer and put it up there. They'll be fumbling around and it's not going to help drunks. I I agree with you there. It's a shame it didn't catch on. It still could though. Maybe this podcast will launch it back into the mainstream with our huge audience and, uh, and it'll gain more traction, but you know, it's, it's been so great to have you on Warren and talk to you, talk to you about your your days in the Libertarian Party, running for governor all the way through and talking about your work with the Fair DUI. Where can uh, the Alliance of Liberty audience learn more about your work? Where can they pick up this flyer? Where can they find your book?
0: The flyer, just Google Fair DUI, F-A-I-R-D-U-I. The book is on Amazon. It's very well reviewed, by the way. I think it's 50. Last time I saw it, it was 53 reviews with, uh, I don't know, 4.7 stars out of 5 stars. I'm not bragging when I say it's a good book. It's a good book. The flyer is on the website for thirty states, and you know, if you as long as you have the top three lines, I remain silent. No searches. I want my lawyer. You've got the basics of the flyer. The other stuff is instructions to the police officer under their state laws. But just having those top three lines is enough. Um, and that's you know that's do it yourself, or you can download one of the flyers from the website from any state and just rip off, take the top of it. And uh, but fairdui.org, F-A-I-R-D-U-I.org is where that's about, and then. I don't know. I got it. There's a whole bunch of ways you can find me on the internet. Google my name, you'll find all kinds of things. Some of it's even true.
1: <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for coming on, Warren. Really appreciate it. Thanks
0: very much for having me.
1: Hope you all enjoyed my interview today with Warren Redlick. It was a little bit longer than normal, which is fine. Uh, We talked about some things that I didn't necessarily know we were going to get into. It was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope you all did too. I just want to remind you all of a a few things uh, before I let you go here. If you listen through iTunes, please subscribe and please go give us a uh, a five star rating and review really helps us with the algorithm that whatever they use to uh, to rank the shows it'll help get the lines of liberty podcast up in the rankings which is going to help us to grow the show another awesome way obviously you can help us out help us to reach more ears is by sharing the show which is pretty simple all you really need to do is make sure you're following the lines of liberty on all these social media on facebook on twitter and and all those things and when we share something to share it with your network. Also, email it out to your friends, your family, anyone you think that would enjoy this show. Please send it to them. Even people you think wouldn't enjoy it, people you think would hate it, send it to them too. Why? Can't hurt. Why not? Just send away. And if you haven't joined the Lions of Liberty Forum yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. The group is growing like crazy. We're probably by the time this airs, we're going to be up around 900 people, I would think. So please think about doing that. There's great conversations going on there. Every single minute of every single day. I'm loving the conversations there. Go to Facebook and punch Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top. It'll pop up and you can click join and we'll get you approved as quick as we can. As long as you're not some sort of raging psychopath. I also want to remind you that if you do have some feedback for the show, um, if you'd like to give me some guest suggestions, comments, questions, things like that, you can always shoot me an email. Send it to FelonyFriday at lionsofliberty.com. And I promise I will read it and I will get back to you. Now, that's all I have for today, guys. I really do appreciate you listening to this show again. As always, this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.